hurricanes, hailstorms, tornadoes, and wildfires. These are just some of the weather hazards that displace families and disrupt lives. Many of us are familiar with the scenes of devastation these hazards cause, and the recovery process for affected communities can take months, even years. In the most extreme circumstances, some may never be whole again. This may prompt many of you to ask, what's being done to reduce the risks associated with these hazards? To answer this question, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety presents the Disaster Discussions Podcast. Join me, your host, Armand Brody, as I sit down with professionals in the insurance, science, construction, and resiliency industries who will help us explore the intersection of these hazards with the built environment. We'll bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country and highlight how science is engineering real-world solutions for home and business owners to create safer, more resilient communities. Join us for these discussions every month. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, go subscribe to the Disaster Discussions podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also invite you to engage with us on social media to ask your questions, share your thoughts, and to learn more about the IBHS mission. Hello and welcome to today's Disaster Discussions podcast. I'm your host, Senior Meteorologist Sarah Dillingham. We are here in the IBHS studios and I want to thank you for joining us for this very special episode. We've had this podcast now. We went live uh, in October of 2021, so we've had this podcast now for over a year. And as we wind down the year of 2023, which is our second official season of the podcast, we wanted to maybe review some of our top episodes. So over the next hour or so, you're going to be listening from uh, some of the top five episodes that we've kind of highlighted that sort of stood out in our minds that brought you some really interesting stories from some really interesting guests that have really made an impact and are making an impact uh, uh, in the industry of resilience uh, and preparedness. So first of all, we want to thank all of our viewers who have been with us from the beginning and those of us who have joined, those of you who have joined along the way. Uh, we couldn't do it without your support and we really appreciate it. And we want you to engage with us on social media. So um, if you've been a listener of the podcast and you had some favorite episodes, maybe jump on our social channels, uh, take a look at Instagram. You can find us at, at IBHS underscore org. And you can also find us there on the same location there in Twitter. And we also have our Facebook page and YouTube channels as well. So we invite you to share your thoughts on the podcast. Tell us how you've enjoyed it over the last 12 to 13 months or so, and maybe some guests that you would like to see us interview down the road. So uh, we're excited of what this next year can hold. We've already got some plans to bring you some very interesting and exciting guests. Um, some names you've probably heard of before uh, already making their mark there, uh, trying to pave the way for resilience and helping us to uh, create a disaster-free world because at the end of the day, that's really what we're after is trying to reduce loss and reduce unnecessary suffering that a lot of people go through. We've been telling a lot of interesting stories. Um, we've covered everything from uh, tornado events to wildfires. We're looking at some of the work being done with our researchers here at IBHS and also partners that we have worked with in the field that are helping us carry those message of resilience in, in, in all across those perils. So what we want to do first is we want to introduce our first episode. As I mentioned, we'll have some of our top five episodes, but we do invite you to go listen to these episodes in their entirety because they, uh, they are going to bring you a lot of uh, great insights there that you're going to want to hear. And again, as you're listening through the podcast, share your favorite episodes as well. So the first one that we're going to highlight is from season one, episode two, and that one is called Back to the Future of Hail. We spoke to IBHS's Ian Giamenko, along with Julian Brimelow of the Northern Hail Project. And these two gentlemen have helped to pioneer um, the IBHS and uh, Canadian hail field programs. Uh, we have collected some novel data, we've got our impact distrometers, and we're wor really working hand in hand with these groups, our, our northern partners as we call them, um, to try and further the science of hail, learn more about uh, hail sizes, concentrations, how they impact our materials on our homes and businesses, and what can we do to reduce loss. So this was a really fun episode, uh, get to highlight some of the history of the hail work that has spanned uh, several years here, approaching a decade uh, for some of those um, pieces that have been done. So go ahead and take this, uh, listen to this episode, Back to the Future of Hail. Just give our audience a sense of what IBHS has done over the past decade plus and how IBHS has led the way 
inhale, release up. So, so one of our our real goals, it was a very strategic thought. Is is one, how do we how do we improve how building materials are tested for hail? That that's how you're going to change the marketplace in terms of getting better materials on people's homes and businesses. Step number one. Then you start working the science underneath it. It's like, what do we need to know to be able to do that? And and Tanya really, as we developed the program, complemented each other. I, sometimes I consider myself like the crazy scientist, you know, at IBHS, the the really kind of wild idea guy. And Tanya was really helpful in reining me in. I know Julian's seen touches of this. Armand, you've been around me long enough to know that. Yes. <laughs> um, but Tanya could constrain it into things we could actually do in the practical elements of those wild ideas. Um, and so we just started going. Um, one of the thoughts was, you know, just we never quantified how strong hailstones were. And as we've seen in the lab, the strength changes the dynamic or the the, the, the modes of impact the dynamics of an impact. And that in turn leads to a different type of damage. So how do we do that? So it's like, okay, well in the concrete world, we actually just go crush concrete and measure the amount of force to fractures. Like, well, why can't we do that for hail? Well, it turns out, you know, Texas Tech tried, but the technology wasn't quite there for great field work. Um, we had both come off of our careers in graduate school at Texas Tech doing all sorts of field programs. I pretty much stuck my nose in every single one I could. Um, and I believe field research and laboratory work goes hand in hand. Um, so we just took it and ran with it and figured out what we had to engineer in the lab from an ice production perspective. How do we change the test programs? And all along the way, you know, I think Tanya met Matt Cumgen at a conference and said, hey, we're doing this. And Matt's like, oh, I'm doing this. Let's go. And then, of course, I met Julian over time, um, Victor Gensini, John Allen. I can just sit here and rattle Becky Adams, Seelan. All these folks are a cluster of really good scientists, and we all just decided we were going to tackle it. Let's just go. And sure enough, you know, we've seen this resurgence show up, and I think it's going to pay dividends to it, and not only in the foundational work, but also the products and services that come out of it. So that's something that the insurance industry is going to care about. This knowledge is going to make its way there and change that picture. So uh, it's been an awful fun ride, and I hope it keeps going as we really start to turn the knobs, and I think we're gonna make some pretty good progress over the next couple of decades to come because of that foundational work. Very encouraging. Now, now, Julian, I know that you were recently with two of IBHS's scientists and um, you guys were scanning some hail. Did I get that right? Tell me That's about right. that. That's right. Um, just wanna start off by saying that IBHS, they've been fantastic partners. We've learned a lot from them and we continue to learn from them. And they've been so generous with their time and their resources. So this year, <clears throat> excuse me, when we had the re new record hailstone that fell in uh, Alberta, um, we wanted to preserve that and uh, the other hailstones that collected that day. So IBHS uh, flew up uh, to folks and, uh, you know, they, they spent a whole day uh, documenting and scanning these hailstones for us. So now we have... Uh, a 3D scan of, of the uh, record hailstone in Canada. Uh, it's, I'm told by the interns who collected them that they actually found larger hail out there. Uh, one of them dropped one of the stones in their rush to get back to the vehicle. So one, one just has to wonder how oh. big could it have been that day? Um, you know, it's, uh, this was by no means the biggest hailstone that fell that day, but it was still very impressive and impressive enough to break a record that was set early in the, in the 1970s over Saskatchewan, which is a sister province to the to the east of us, and they have much juicier environments there, and they're known for very big hail. So, for us to find this hailstone in central Alberta, you know, if you're over a thousand meters above sea level, um, it tends to be drier. We don't, you know, we don't have the really juicy air, and for us to record this new hailstone there was just amazing. And welcome back. We hope that you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Julian Bremelo and Dr. Ian Giamenko as they recount all of the great work that these two teams have been able to accomplish in the field in the way of hail observations. These two guys really are pioneers and we're excited to be partners with them uh, with our Canadian friends to the north. They're getting uh, some great data and we've been really able to uh, learn from each other uh, and try to kind of uh, race each other there uh, as we try to make the uh, observations that much more interesting and just really nail down 
um, a lot of the uh, data that we've been collecting on hail, how it impacts our roofing materials, our building materials, and what we can do to reduce loss. So if that wasn't enough to whet your appetite for this series, we hope you'll stay tuned for this next episode we're going to bring you. Uh, this one also comes from season one. This is going to be episode six. This was from the special segment that we brought you. We were live from the Severe Local Storms Conference in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, this is where a lot of meteorologists in academia and the broadcast industries really get together and they just talk severe storms. Uh, and we were able to uh, interview one of our uh, friendly faces here around IBHS, Dr. Tanya G Brown Giamenko. Uh, and she spoke on the EF scale and the uh, initiatives that are currently ongoing to help produce a standard out of this because what we want to do, we want to be able to create a standard so that when the EF scale needs to be uh, updated, this is the scale that rates tornadoes, then we do have a, a method of doing that in an organized way. Uh, we can do that with documentation along the way. This was a fun one where I got to sit down with a very good friend of mine uh, and talk a little bit of our history as well as we have come up through the same graduate program um, and share some of the great work that she's doing. And this is one of her pioneering uh, projects for her career uh, to help improve the EF scale. So uh, with no further ado, I'll help you take a listen here over the next several minutes to Dr. Tanya Brown Giamenko. Once we do kind of get that finished product, um, how do you how do you see this? Um, what kind of changes do you see being um, resulting from this coming out? I mean, how can people in the private sector and, and insurance industry try and benefit from something like this? Obviously, the Weather Service, um, who is going to be out there implementing the scale engineers um, as they do damage surveys, that's going to impact them. But curious what your thoughts are on the other organizations as well. I mean, I think from uh, kind of the insurance perspective, to me, it's all about the risk. Mm -hmm. The way that we characterize tornado risk in this country is foundationally based on the F scale and then the EF scale. Um, with the introduction of an even better EF scale and radar-based methodologies and tree fall-based methodologies, I think we're going to have a better look at what the true risk in the country is. It wouldn't surprise me to find out that, I mean, if you think about the classic graph you always see, the highest number of tornadoes is EF zero and it tapers down. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if you actually had um, some kind of normal distribution where your peak is actually like EF three. Mm -hmm. um, again, by definition, a lot of things get rated EF zero because there's no other opportunity. Now that we're working on getting some of these other methodologies in there, I think I don't think that'll be the case anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't think EF zero will be the predominant um, classification anymore. I think we'll see higher wind speeds and that um, ultimately has a big, a big effect on the risk perspective uh, and the climatology mm -hmm. of, of tornadoes in this country. Mm -hmm. That's where I think the insurance industry needs to be paying attention. Right, right. And I mean, um, I, I had a question there and I just lost it for a second, but, um, so yeah, so that, that's definitely a major positive. Um, and you talked about, um, the changing risk. Um, how do we think that this could maybe work backwards and start impacting building codes? Because codes are, that's something that goes, is baked into the EF scale, right? We have to see not just what the wind is doing to a structure. We also have to consider the structure itself, age, pra construction practice, location, age of building code. So, um, given that risk, does that kind of Am I asking the right question? Does that factor back into building codes that way? Well, I th so I think one major difference that you'll see in the new EF scale when it's published is that, again, we're not focusing on this lower bound wind speed versus upper bound wind speed. That's gone away. What we are focusing on is wind speed resistance. Mm -hmm. So is it weaker than typical resistance? Is it typical resistance or is it stronger than typical resistance? And we go through for each damage indicator what that means. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, Having an understanding of what materials are used, how well those are connected, how well it can go through the load path, uh, transfer those loads, that's the kind of information that will help the user, or that's the kind of information that the user needs to be able to decide, you know, is my wind speed actually mm -hmm. on the lower end or is it in the upper, uh, the upper end? And I think um, to some degree that would give a chance um, to talk about what the true wind speeds are that affect a community. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you see uh, is that people often believe that the absolute worst or fastest or highest grade tornado affected them or hurricane or fill in the blank mm -hmm. hazard. But I'm, I'm curious to see if once we say, you know, actually, you know, the construction practices here, you know, were weaker than typical. So the wind speed was only this. Does that start to trigger some recognition mm -hmm. that, 
oh, so it's not just the tornado that affected how much damage I got. It's the building itself that affected exactly. how much damage I got. So I think there's kind of an indirect tie there with uh, the building code aspect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are places where the building code is really strengthened. Um, you know, we just got um, tornado loads and tornado maps into ASCE 7, which is the mother document of, of kind of all building codes. Mm -hmm. And so the, the attention to tornadoes, I think is there in the engineering space. And I think the Fujita or the enhanced Fujita scale additions and what we're doing with that ASCE standard is only going to help in that, mm -hmm. in that world. Yeah. And I think you're right. You, you, you mentioned, you made a good point about, you know, people, when you get impacted by a tornado, it's a very personal event and understandably yeah. so. Uh, when you see some of these images um, of destruction, when you see how homes wiped off their foundation, we even had someone uh, ask a question, one of the ES scale presentations today talking about the, the, uh, the changes that are going to be made. And they brought back, well, when we see typically in the past, when we have seen clean slabs, that's an indicator of an EF5 or an F5 tornado, that's not necessarily the case. We assume that the house was even able, it was even built to withstand, you know, those winds in the first place. It might've only made it to an EF2 or three because of those, those construction practices before it ultimately failed. So you're right, it, it is, it's, it's all complementary, right? The way that we're building the scale, the way that we apply it, it's all complementary. And that was a great discussion that I got to have there with Tanya. Uh, I learned something along the way. Um, one episode that we didn't pull out of this top five list uh, was the episode with her colleague, uh, Jim Ledoux. Uh, he's also working on this initiative to um, try and help improve the way we uh, observe wind, the way we rate wind events. And it's some really exciting work going on there. Um, and I learned some things that I did not know about the EF scale and the need for that standardization. So uh, I really enjoyed doing that and I hope you learned something as I certainly learned something in prepping for that episode. Um, so the next episode, this is going to be the third one of our list of the top five. Uh, this is going to be now in season two, our current season. Uh, episode two in this uh, is when we spoke to Professor Elon Kelman. And this uh, episode was entitled, Are We Setting Ourselves Up for Disaster? And he poses some intriguing questions and thought-provoking questions that makes us wonder, is the way that we're building our societies, are we setting ourselves up for loss? Um, uh, we have these discussions as we see so many different events. Uh, I know we're, as we're recording this episode just days ago, we saw the power of tornadoes and how those can, uh, can rip apart homes very easily. But it is really the construction practices that we also have to look at. It's not just the peril. It's not just the hazard, how strong the tornado was. Are those buildings setting us up for that loss that we see, the, the destruction that we see? And he really does, as I said, ask some thought-provoking questions. So we hope that you'll take a listen to that episode and let us know what you thought of that one. So we'll be right back. You know, you're a man after my heart because uh, working here at IBHS with an amazing team of meteorologists and scientists and engineers, when we were creating this podcast, we had a lot of discussion about that term, natural disasters. And not really a question here. I, I kind of want to set you up with this statement. But just the team around me here at IBHS, we made an effort to make sure that we were not using the term natural disasters. And I'm fascinated by the fact that among those of you in the science community, those of us in the science community, we understand that what we call something matters. What we label it as, how we define it, how we describe it, how we communicate it, it does matter. And it's so wonderful that IBHS is on board really appreciate the work, but it's not just sort of us scientists working in isolation, or, or I would hope not. We need to hear from industry. We need to hear from the public. We need to hear from the nonprofit sector. We need to hear from governments and international organizations. Fortunately, so much, so many agree with us in IBHS. The United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction agrees disasters are not natural and avoid the term. We work with so many non-governmental organizations and businesses who are absolutely on board and are saying this is a way to go. So yes, let's hear from people, let's work together. And if there's this agreement, wonderful, let us know. And then we can discuss and we can determine and see, can we move forward? What evidence is there for the different points of view and what is best fundamentally for helping people? We are science communicators. You are, we are here at IBHS. And I'm curious, 
What are some of the gaps that you've noticed in communicating the science behind disasters? We're going to touch on uh, your YouTube series uh, in a little while, but what are the gaps in communicating the science of disasters, Elon? It is very hard to move away from starting with the environment. Fully understandably, when we feel the wind in our face, when we feel the earth shaking, when we see that ash cloud rising into the atmosphere, that's what we think about. And we say, well, this has now happened. That's the starting point. So it does make sense. It's so tangible. The gap is moving away from that and actually having the starting point as being people. It really goes back to this day-to-day -day, uh, aspect, to daily livelihoods. Why are people poor? Why are they marginalized? Why are they living in dwellings which don't withstand a perfectly typical environmental event? What are the politics behind all this? What are the social expectations, structures, and norms, which mean that some people feel far more afraid than others? The starting point of people, why we are in certain situations, why we do not, do not have the resources or opportunities to get out of those situations, why so few people accumulate so much wealth, why there is a desire to remove opportunity and choice from so many others, and why often we just say, well, they were killed in the flood, that's the way it's going to be. We need to really fill in the gap of starting with people, their situations, their circumstances. We need to fill in the gap of why some infrastructure is built wonderfully and protects people and supports people and serves people and other infrastructure collapses at the least hint of a bit of a natural event. So disasters are about people. Disasters are caused by society making certain choices for people to put them in difficult situations. The real gap is how can we flip around our thinking, our approaches, our resource allocation, and primarily our actions to start with people, to help people, which absolutely includes helping ourselves. So what you're essentially saying is when it comes to disasters, everything that we do as a society, everything's sort of interconnected. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, absolutely wonderful summary. We, we have to... Let me explain why I asked that. Yeah. I'm sorry, Alon, but let me explain why I asked that. Because I can hear the arguments on the other side from heaven knows how many people, and I'm sure you've, you've heard them. Kelman, leave that science stuff out of my day-to-day real-world experiences. You're bringing that stuff in here, you're shoving this science down my throat, but what you're saying is you cannot separate the science, you can't separate what we know in the science space from how people live day-to-day. -day. Yes, and, and you're right, people do make that statement and it is understandable. What we need to do is say, look, you are an expert in your own life. You know what you're going through. But I hope that in the same way you can teach me, I hope that we can exchange and I could provide something to ha make you have to help you work within your own circumstances to have a safer and healthier life. A lot of the suggestions that I have or might give do not apply to everyone. They simply cannot. And of course, I don't understand everyone's circumstances. I have my own life, my own concerns, my own opportunities. This is where it has to be a conversation. It should never be me as the apparently wonderful expert doling out my incredible knowledge to the poor innocent masses. I mean, that's ridiculous. We are all experts. We all have so much to offer. We all have so much to gain. And by working with people, by providing information, ideas, actions, behaviors in different forms, I learn. Because someone may say, that's absolutely ridiculous. How can you suggest that it's not going to work? Say, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. And I've been doing it, which puts me in danger, so I need to change. We have the concerns. We know people are dying in disasters when they don't have to. So let's work together within all our expertises to ensure that it is valid, it is valuable, 
and the different knowledges that we produce, science and many other types of knowledges, are useful, usable, and used. Boy, that was an interesting episode there from Professor Elon Kalman. Uh, he posed some really thought-provoking questions about um, is the way that we're building, are we setting ourselves up for the losses that we see? Uh, or are we making these losses more likely because we're not building with resilience in mind? And here at IBHS, we have our scientists that are keenly focused on how these perils impact with our built environment. But it's not just the work that we're doing here at IBHS. It also requires the works of, of nonprofits, uh, those in the finance industry, uh, local policymakers, uh, national policymakers across the globe uh, for their respective countries. All of these agencies and, and communities need to be working in tandem because it's communities that work together that help to generate community resilience. And so uh, some really uh, interesting points. And we need somebody that's going to ask those challenging questions. We need to um, take people's expertise where it can be applied and trying to insert that in the conversation and see how we can all learn from each other to try and prevent loss down the road. All right, well, we're uh, nearing episode four of our top five uh, over our podcast series. And this one was a really fun guest. This one um, is from season two, episode five, and it was called Committed to Resilience, Alabama and the Fortified Program. And for this one, we spoke to the Alabama Insurance Commissioner, Mark Fowler. He's a really good friend of ours here at IBHS and the Fortified Program. Alabama is one of the states where we have more than 40,000 designations um, that are helping to keep 40,000 plus families safer um, in, from hurricanes, uh, damaging winds, tornadoes, um, hailstorms, all of that. And so um, we're really proud to have those partners. This program has been developing in the state for more than a decade. Um, and we've got a system of resilience, a scalable resilience system working there. We've got the insurance industry, policymakers, building code officials, grant programs, nonprofits, all working together to try and bring more resilience to more families across the state. And we just hope that that fortified program is going to continue to spread like wildfire across the country. We're already seeing movement in the states of Louisiana uh, and, and uh, Florida there as well. All across the country, we're really starting to expand that fortified program. So we really enjoyed this guest. And uh, if you like football, you might get something that you like in here, especially if you're an Auburn football fan. I'm a Georgia football fan myself, but that's okay. I won't hold that against any of our Auburn listeners, but uh, this was a fun episode. I invite you to go listen to the full thing. But for now, here's a short clip. I want to read you this quote uh, from Governor Kay Ivey, and it kind of goes to what you were just talking about. You mentioned uh, at least seven or eight times, I think, in your last uh, handful of comments, you were talking about partnerships. And, now, this is a great thing because I want to read this quote here from Governor Ivey to sort of uh, underscore your point. Alabama understood that we can make our homes and businesses stronger so more of us can come through the next storm with just minor damage, allowing our towns and our state to recover much faster. Led by the Department of Insurance, Alabama was a first mover in recognizing the fortified construction standard. In recognizing the fortified construction standard provides a roadmap to more resilient communities. And so I sort of see all of what we're talking about here from the governor's comments to all of the great contributions of Commissioner Riddling, to the folks here at IBHS, to Strength in Alabama Homes, to Smart Home America, which we'll get to in, in, in a little while as well. Yeah. Uh, just talk right. to me about how the partnerships, how all of these different elements coming together have worked together for the good of Alabama and for resilient homes and communities. Sure. Well, thank you, Armand, for that question. That's a great question. And let me tell you something, the partnerships are, are critical. There's no way any of us could do this alone or in a vacuum. It has to be done through outstanding, strong, uh, well-configured well partnerships of everyone pulling the wagon in the same direction. If that had not been the case, this program would never be successful. You mentioned Smart Home America. Well, Smart Home America is, is, has been critical to our success. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners as well, uh, uh, NAIC, heavily involved in all this and heavily supportive of all we're doing here and encouraging other states and other states are getting involved in this now. Habitat for Humanity, local municipalities. We're, we've been involved with IBHS, Habitat for Humanity, the City of Birmingham and Protective Life and uh, Smart Home America and so many others working together uh, on a program to fortify well over 100 homes in five historic neighborhoods around the, the brand new Protective Stadium uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. And Protective Life 
uh, has, has been at the forefront of that with the Department of Insurance and with IBHS and with Habitat and City of Birmingham and, and Smart Home America. We've all been pulling the wagon the same together. And that program has been wildly successful in that area and enjoys great support. So it's not just, and that's not in the coastal areas of Montgomery, I mean, uh, excuse me, of Alabama. We started this down in the coastal area with all this happening in Mobile and Baldwin counties. Uh, we now, the legislature some years ago gave us the authority to move that program statewide. And now I think we're in some almost 30 counties, 27, 28, maybe close to 30 counties in Alabama. Um, and uh, in Birmingham, that's in north central Alabama. And that program has been extremely well done. The partnerships that we have, we have um, forged through this program have been the way it has worked. It would not have worked without the support and the efforts and everybody pulling the wagon together with, with our partnership with IBHS has been, been vital and critical. With Smart Home America, with NAIC, with uh, local municipalities and Habitat and all the folks that I've talked about, and on special projects like the one in, in Birmingham with Protective Life, that project is called Protecting Good. There's no question that's been a huge success. And, and so Governor Ivey uh, has been, a, been a, an outspoken and, and significant supporter of this program from her first day in office, and she has been a, uh, a help to us all along the way. She even carved out some money in the general fund one time <clears throat> one year to help us uh, with this program. So we appreciate the support of Governor Ivey. And in fact, if Governor Ivey wasn't as strong and supportive as, as she has been on this program, it wouldn't be successful and we wouldn't be doing the things we are, we are able to do. Governor Riley was, was uh, largely supportive of this as well. He was a huge supporter of the program, as was Governor Bentley. And now Governor Ivey took the mantle and has let us really take this and run with. So we couldn't be more thankful of the support we've received from our governor here in Alabama on this program. Well said, Commissioner. Uh, <clears throat> I want to ask about Sally, as you mentioned. Uh, we did a webinar back in uh, 2021, I believe the fall of 2021, talking about Fortified's performance when it comes to Hurricane Sally. And at that time, I was in this studio, as a matter of fact, talking with uh, Ian Jamanko, our lead research meteorologist. And I mentioned something to the effect of there are quizzes, there are tests, and then there are final exams. And, and, and I think Sally represented a final exam for the state of Alabama. But Fortified performed so well. And I want to just sort of set the table for you to really dive in on, on the significance of Fortified, especially with that stiff test uh, presented by Hurricane Sally. Well, that's a great question, Armand. It's a great statement, and you're exactly right uh, uh, of how this came out. You know, you, you, you don't want a, a hurricane. You just you don't want a tornado. You don't want these storms, but, uh, but the storms are going to come, and you have to realize that. And, and this whole program is about being prepared for those storms and how we prepare for them and how we get ready for them. So when Hurricane Sally came through Alabama, it provided a real live field test for the Fortified program that we had not had before uh, in Alabama. We knew through research, we knew through testing, we knew through all the work IBHS does that, uh, that this was good technology, but it hadn't been through a hurricane. And then Hurricane Sally came and they got a real life field test and we were so excited. We were not excited about a hurricane. We were not excited about the damage Hurricane, Halley, Hurricane uh, Sally uh, uh, put on the state of Alabama and the devastation that comes with something like that. But if there's a silver lining to any of that, it's the way the fortified roofs performed after hurricane, in, in, in Hurricane Sally and in the aftermath, going back and looking at that. You could look at aerial photographs of neighborhoods and see all these blue tarps all over the place. And then you saw these, these sprinkles of, of the, of the uh, whole roofs, the black roofs out there. And you could look at that and we've been able to verify with IBHS's help that many of those were IBHS fortified homes and many of them uh, constructed with Strength in Alabama Homes grants. And so they performed as advertised. And you know that's always a good thing to be able to say, they performed as advertised and that's exactly what we needed. But, the, but some of the important parts of that, not only the, the great benefits that came from knowing we had these residents here who did not have the devastation that they could have had had they not been fortified. Residents that could get up and, and, um, and, and, and go to work the next morning and not have to be displaced. 
uh, not having a bunch of uh, debris all over the place that that local communities had to uh, had to spend money to pick to to clean up where there are insurance claims that didn't have to be filed uh, on these um, on many of these homes. The one of the great parts about this is Governor Ivy herself, already a supporter of the Fortified Program, went down to the coast and in our and, and toured the areas of damage in the in the areas that uh, where Hurricane Sally went over, and she saw in real life and in real time. The, the, the fortified roofs and the benefits that came in those in those all those blue tarps. Uh, uh, IBHS President Roy Wright uh, uh, tells a story about somebody asking about how do we tell what the fortified roofs are, and he said, "Well, we've color coded them for you. You know, they're the blue ones are not fortified. The ones not blue are the are the fortified homes." Governor Ivy and um, and our and and our legislative leaders uh, from that area and the and the legislative leadership in Alabama. Uh, got an opportunity to actually see that in real life. They saw it live, and they came to us and they said, "What can we do to help the Strengthen Alabama Homes program?" How about that? That was amazing to be able to get that kind of request. What can we do? At that time, there was so much demand for the program. We had a huge backlog. We had we had thousands of grants we couldn't make. There was just a backlog of people. The demand was so high for the program, um, and they came to us and said, "We're going to do whatever it takes." For you to break that backlog, and they helped us get through that. And sure enough, in in a year or so, uh, that backlog was gone, and uh, we're now making new grants for strengthening Alabama homes. And in 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 the um, in Hurricane Sally, as devastating it was, and as bad as it was to have a hurricane, that was the silver lining uh, in all of that. And the demand for these grants from day one had been a massive. Um, we'll have we can only give out so much because we only have so much money. But we'll put that out. We have a, a great website, strengthenalabamahomes.com, that you can get to by going to the, the Department of Insurance website, which is uh, aldoi.gov, that's G-O-V.gov, and you can find the Strengthen Alabama Home site from that. And uh, people will go to that to, to find out how to get their grants and get in line for that. And we, we sort of open that up uh, quarterly, uh, at midnight on a certain day, we'll announce what day that's going to be. And I can tell you that that Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster have nothing on <laughs> Brian Powell and the Strength in Alabama Homes program because we were run out of grants in eight seconds. They will go on at midnight, and at 12, at midnight in eight seconds, I think is the record. One time it was 15 seconds. One time it might have made a minute. They're gone. And they're all they're all spoken for whatever whatever however number we put out there, uh, they're gone. So it's like sitting overnight and people are waiting up overnight for like they're waiting for stones tickets. It's just unbelievable. And uh, uh, if we had ten times the number of grants, we would uh, we would give them away immediately. That's that much demand for the program, and it's been that successful. And I wish we had the money for that. If we did, we would be. Well, that was a fun, engaging interview with Alabama Insurance Commissioner Mark Fowler. And we really want to thank him for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to join us. Uh, it's not every day that we get to, to speak to somebody that's kind of in those one of those uh, high positions. So we really appreciate it when people can give us that time uh, to, to spend with us talking about how we can spread the message of resilience uh, and sustainability and how we can make that available for more people across the country. So really appreciate um, all the work that they're doing there in the state of Alabama. Well, without further ado, we're now at the top five. Uh, we're at the fifth episode here. Um, this one we just recorded a few weeks ago from season two, episode nine. This was a new series um, within our podcast that we started called On the Radar. And this is where we focus on something that is um, more timely events. If we have a weather event or wildfire event in this case that we want to focus on, we bring some of our researchers in, some of our other IBHS staff there, and we want to have these discussions that we're maybe having by the water cooler or in our meeting rooms. What are the things that we're looking at? So this was a series that we wanted to start to bring you in behind the scenes of some conversations that we're having amongst ourselves. And in this particular video, 
We focus on the Lahaina wildfires that were so devastating on the island of Maui uh, back in August of 2023. Uh, we did send uh, uh, some crews out there to observe some of the damage and try to learn from these things. And um, it was just a really tough scene out there. We know that a lot of people um, are still hurting and trying to recover. Um, and so what we did in this episode, we showed some of our early insights just from um, some imagery that we were able to collect, um, you know, looking from aerial imagery and the like and trying to learn um, how did this wildfire event unfold? How can we try and prevent these kinds of things in the future? So this was a really um, interesting episode to be able to prepare for. Uh, and we spoke to Dr. Ian Giamenko uh, and Steve Hawks, who's formerly of CAL FIRE, now working with us here at IVHS. And we shared their insights and we really got down to how um, wildfires are ignited in the first place. We talk about those three methods of ignition and why they're so critical and how we can hopefully build our homes and retro fit our homes now. We even get into discussions about our wildfire prepared home program uh, that is meant as a system of mitigations to try and uh, reduce your risk to wildfires. So uh, this was a good episode. Really would like you to go listen to the um, episode in its entirety. But for now, uh, here's a few minutes from that. Now, um you guys have already referenced uh, Marshall, Colorado fire. It was December 2021. Um, that was another deadly wildfire conflagration. Um, Steve, I want to get your perspective on this one. You know, we talked about Lahaina. Um, we dealt with these grasslands. Like, what what was the landscape there? How did we get from uh, this this grassland fire to get into the city of Lahaina? Yeah. So the um, uh, community of Lahaina was surrounded by uh, grassland areas. Uh, and typically we see fires start um, with possibly the exception of being lightning fire, but start in fine fuels like uh, grass, leaf litter, um, pine needles, duff, things like that. So that's where fire starts. And then um, it can burn really quickly in grass fire. Um, fire will burn faster in grasslands than it will through brush or timber areas. And with those winds that were there on Lahaina, um, uh, blowing through Lahaina that day, those winds, along with that volatile fuel of the grassland areas, pushed that fire, um, which started pretty close to Lahaina, into the town uh, very quickly. And so um, once it got into the town, then it just spread um, through the, the three main vectors that we see um, from home to home. And those vectors being um, embers are one of the primary reasons of uh, fire transmission from the wildland fire to a, a structure, and that can occur either directly where the ember lands on the structure itself on a vulnerable component and ignites that component or enters the home through an opening such as a vent and, um, and ignites a component on the inside of the house. So uh, those are the direct transmissions or embers can indirectly ignite a structure by landing um, usually in that five feet surrounding the structure um, and igniting flammable material in that five feet, which puts fire directly at the side of the structure and allows that fire to um, transfer from the other two modes, which are uh, direct uh, flame contact or radiant heat exposure uh, to the house. So um, we see about 90% of home destruction is directly attributed uh, to ember exposure. And, um, you know, unfortunately, once a house starts on fire, there's about a 90 uh, to 95% chance that it will be completely destroyed unless there's uh, fire department intervention. Yeah, and Steve, I'm so glad that you touched on the three methods of ignition because, you know, I I think that, um, I know before I started IBHS, I, I spent a, a career more than a decade in broadcast meteorology, and I thought I knew how wildfires spread, but then you get to a place like IBHS where you can see the science behind and you see all the different ways that fire can spread. And I think oftentimes we have this visual, if you've not experienced that before, you have this visual, well, it's a massive wall of flames that just is wind-driven and it's just this wall of fire that uh, you're running from or fire crews are just battling this line of fire, but it's really not like that. Sometimes that is the case, uh, depending on where you are, but oftentimes it might be these spot fires that are generated as these embers that you're talking about are carried downwind and can, like you said, ignite 
spots and little areas. And if there's enough fuel, then we could see potentially that spread to structures. And then we have structural embers, right, which is another type of ember that we have to deal with. Um, so, Ian, kind of keeping in the theme with the ember, I just kind of mentioned we've got structural embers. We also have vegetative embers. Let's talk a little bit about the characteristics of those and how wind carries those respectively, because it is a little bit different. Yeah, we'll start with kind of looking at the fine fuel grasslands. Um, in this scenario, you're not generating the, the large embers that, that, say, a traditional forest fire, those kind of fuels, a crown fire is going to be generating. Or some of those have the, the true plume-driven fires where these large particles can really get lofted um, pretty high. I mean, some of those updrafts in those plume fires are you know 90-plus miles per hour. In this case, you have grassland fuels, one, creating really long-stretched flames under those those uh, wind conditions, and it's moving very fast. But the same high winds help extinguish those little tiny grassland embers very quickly. That fuel is consumed very, very fast. Um, so in this case, we're probably looking at direct flame and radiant heat that started the very first ignitions. But then, as Steve mentioned, you start this transition over to those three dominant mechanisms all going at the same time. Structural embers, I, I think there's an area that, that there's a lot of research needed on how those tumble and move in, in a very complex wind flow environment, which is a suburban terrain scenario. But those are often bigger, a lot more heat energy. Uh, they're consumed at, at different rates than our vegetative fuels. And they're just, all of it's just getting pushed along by the wind flow. And what's downwind, right? Homes, businesses, and the fuels that surround them. Not to mention they're getting propelled it's just a recipe for this 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 catastrophe to unfold, and and I think that's kind of the chain events that we saw here with Lahaina, which actually mimics the Marshall Fire, um, pretty well from a bulk scenario perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then I, I kind of wish we have these. Uh, wish I had one of these with me right now. We have these three D printed embers, and they can, they can be about yay big. Um, so they can be uh, pretty large pieces of debris that that get lofted and then can carry that fire. And it's just basically a match waiting to to light and uh, light something that it sits on. So yeah, and so we've talked about kind of the concert of all these three playing together and how volatile of an environment that creates. So I'm glad that we've kind of set the stage on the weather conditions for the day how fire can spread through the community and how it has spread through this community, at least based on our analysis thus far. So I want everybody to keep those ignition methods in mind because when they're working in concert, that's when mitigation becomes so important. And that's when we're going to talk about why that is later on. But now we know about the weather conditions. Well, let's talk a little bit about the state of the community itself. And to do that, we have to take a look at the building codes that were in place for like, how are the codes um, structured so that these homes and businesses are built to a certain standard that meets wind criteria, fire criteria, et cetera. So Ian, as our uh, resident codes uh, expert, could you shed a little bit of light on that and what the building code um, landscape was like in Lahaina? Yeah, if you look at Hawaii just as a state, they've done a remarkable job really improving their, their building code adoption and enforcement on the wind side. You know, they had the 2018 International Residential Code, but um, I want folks to actually really understand that often the wildland urban interface codes are separate. Uh, this is a problem, and we can talk about this yeah. later, that the IRC, IBC deal with uh, elements of interior fire. I look at my house right in the room I'm sitting. I've got interior sprinklers in here. Um, there's provisions on fire spread through the wall systems. But none of this tackles the external source of fire, which is the wildfire acting as a catalyst here. So while we had the IRC, 2018 IRC in place, the elements that are included in wildland urban interface codes, because they're kept separate, were not in, were not in place. Hawaii has done a good job. They have adopted a wildland urban interface standard that's based on the uh, one that's developed by the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA. But we are unsure like where those WUI designated areas were. Um, a lot of their materials on planning, their, their, their county wildfire protection plan called CWPP, hazard mitigation plans, had great information. They were on the right path, but in terms of actual implementation, it, it's been a patchwork there for fire. Whereas Windside, they, you know, we all thought this, right? We thought the threat was more wind-related than fire, even though Hawaii does, the islands have a history of wildfire. We were so focused on the wind element, maybe it was, we, we just didn't grasp how much progress mm -hmm. was needed quickly. And that's, that is the story of all how natural hazards become catastrophes. Mm -hmm. We just either didn't keep up 
or the event exposes where we've either had to make compromises or just didn't get there fast enough. And I think we saw that play out here. So um, not to mention we had a, a lot of older construction. Uh, if you think the development of the islands from the 1960s through the 70s, uh, that's way before the modern codes that, that we see today. And there's some elements we could talk about the success stories in a little bit. Um, and that older construction, that pre-modern you know, HVAC era, um, those homes are designed for ventilation, right? It's a warm, arid climate. We want to cool those structures. So the, the point was to have air flowing through it. But what does that do with embers? You probably have introduced a pretty big vulnerability um, and it's, we believe that that was probably an element that got exploited. And, and like all catastrophes, the hazard finds the weak point in the chain. You, you hear us talk about system ad nauseum, right? Well, that's what we're saying. Like, if you don't have the system, the hazard, whatever it is, if it's a windstorm or a wildfire, it's going to find the weak point. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, the outcomes, it's, it's almost predetermined because the system wasn't there. Well, that was an eye-opening discussion there with Dr. Ian Giamanco and Steve Hawks, who is our Director of Wildfire Policy here at IBHS. Um, And just getting to um, think about how these wildfires can spread. We talk about this wildland-urban interface and how it's such a critical zone that we are building our communities in, but it also puts us at higher risk for for wildfires. When these fires do occur, fire can find the weakest link in our structures, just like wind and just like any other peril. And it's imperative that we mitigate against it. And so we're, our goal is to try and prevent these wildfire conflagrations, these community scale events that are just so devastating, um, that create so much loss, so much displacement, and, and so much hardship uh, on the people in those communities. So our hearts are still out with those people in Lahaina as they're still trying to recover. We know they have a, a long road ahead of them, or they have a long road ahead of them. And so um, we'll support uh, communities like this in, in our work as we go forward um, for the next um, years to come here at IBHS. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed our top five episodes. As I mentioned, go back and listen to all of these episodes in their entirety. And if there's some episodes that we left out you feel we should have included, go back and give those a listen. Post those on our social media channels there on Instagram and Twitter at IBHS underscore org. Also find us on Facebook and YouTube as well. Um, We really want to thank you again for being with us these past 13 to 14 months here of our podcast. As I mentioned, we've got a lot of exciting guests starting in early 2024 are going to be focusing probably on some severe thunderstorms as we head into severe season as we get into the latter part of the spring we know we want people to prepare for those um, for those events because really thunderstorms can happen any time of the year but we know that spring is an active time for that so keep an eye out for those episodes as we head into the new year and if you have any ideas for future episodes and people that we should be talking to please reach out and let us know but thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions Podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at Disaster Safety, Facebook at facebook.com slash disaster safety and on Instagram at IBHS underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit IBHS.org.